Hey friend, are you struggling to find consistent paid speaking gigs? Do you want to know the exact six steps that you can take to find and book more paid speaking opportunities in 2024? Well, we want to make that easy for you. We've created a new free resource with the help of Dan Irvin, one of our highly successful speakers on our team. Dan has booked over $100,000 in paid speaking gigs in the last few years, and his six-step process is going to help you maximize your chances of getting booked and paid to speak in any industry. You're going to learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, and proposal emails and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps and we're going to send you this 18-page guide straight to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps and you're going to get that free guide. Hey, thanks for listening. You're awesome. Hey, what's up, friends? Graham Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab Podcast. Good to have you here with us today. We are a couple of weeks into the new year, so happy new year to you. Hope 2020 has started off strong. Now, if you are someone who is serious about finding and booking gigs this year, then uh, you definitely need to check out our latest book, new book, The Successful Speaker, Five Steps to Booking Gigs, Getting Paid, and Building Your Platform. This is a book that uh, I've been working on for the past couple of years, really excited about. We took everything we know and everything we've learned about the speaking industry, and we put it into this resource here. So you definitely need to pick it up. You can actually pre-order it by going over to thespeakerlab.com slash book. That's what it is. The speakerlab.com slash book. The, uh, the book is going to be out February the 18th. But if you pre-order it, we actually have several bonuses that you can pick up, including getting the audiobook for free. So uh, again, stop by thespeakerlab.com slash book and pick up your copy of The Successful Speaker. We really do appreciate it. All right. So today we've got a great guest. We have uh, David Meerman Scott. And uh, David has is a very successful speaker. He's been in the business for a long time. We, uh, we actually talk right out of the gate why he includes his middle name uh, in kind of his, his, uh, his marketing, his branding. We also talk about as he speaks on a topic that is for a lot of potential audiences, how does he make sure that he doesn't get lost in the sea of other speakers? He actually does a lot of work speaking on Tony Robbins stages at his events. And so we talk about how did that relationship come to be? How do you get to speak on Tony Robbins stage? So we talk that through. And then we also talk about the importance of speakers thinking about how they can turn their clients into fans and raving fans. And so a lot that we get into there. Plus, he tells one of the best stories at the end. I'm just telling you now, uh, I don't recommend fast forwarding to the end, but if you only have a couple minutes, make sure you listen to the full thing, but listen to the end story. This is something he shared in a uh, private group that we're in with uh, professional speakers uh, a few weeks ago. It is a hysterical story. You're going to love it. It's a nightmare uh, for every speaker. Uh, his telling of it is, uh, is amazing. So uh, make sure that you stick around till the end for that. So let's jump right into this conversation with David Meerman Scott. Enjoy. Hey, what's up, friends? Graham Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. Good to have you here with us today. Today, joined by David Meerman Scott. David, you include the middle name. I read yes. about this on the site. There's a thought behind it. But there for a is. lot of speakers who have a common name, talk to us about why the middle name. This was one of the most important business decisions I ever made. This is a long time ago, 20, more than 20 years ago. I did a Google search for David Scott. And oh my gosh, there's a David Scott who walked on the moon. There's a David Scott who at the time was a number one Ironman triathlon champion. There's a David Scott who's a member of Congress from Georgia. I'm not going to be able to compete. So I recognized really early on I had to figure something out. So I used my middle name, which is Meerman, and I'm David Meerman Scott. I'm the only David, David Meerman Scott on the planet. And I actually think you're right, Grant, that 
any speaker who's thinking about going out there, you know, it sounds really weird, but the name you use (laughs) should be something that you can own in the search engines. And it can also be something that is easy to spell and remember. Do you have any issues? So what is, what's the primary domain that you use today? So I use davidmeermanscott.com for my speaking business. But then for some of my books, for example, the latest one, Fanocracy, I, I, I use a separate URL for that. I used to have my, a separate URL for a blog, but I've rolled that um, under David Meerman Scott, which for me, I think is the right move. Do you have any issues? Because you look at something like Meerman, which when you look at it, it's easy to spell. Yes. But whenever you're saying it like from stage or you're talking to a potential client, do they have any issues spelling that? A little bit, but I found that any challenge that I've had is way, 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 way smaller than the, the incredible benefits I've gotten from this because having a name like David Scott is not a brand. It's a name that, and it's two first names. (laughs) I've had people call me Scott David many times, but David Meerman Scott is, it becomes a brand in itself. It becomes something that people remember because there's only one David Meerman Scott. And and people remember it. So, you know, some people don't know if there's a hyphen in there or things mm-hmm. like that, which kind of get annoying, but it's very minor compared to the huge benefits I've derived from this. Very cool. All right. I want to dig into your journey. You've been in the speaking industry for a long time. You do a, a significant amount of speaking on some major platforms. For people who aren't familiar with you, give it kind of a snapshot here of how much speaking are you doing? Who are you generally speaking to? What are you typically speaking about? Sure. So I wrote a book called The New Rules of Marketing and PR that originally came out in 2007. It was six months on the Business Week bestseller list. It's in 29 languages. And I've written some other books since then, but that book really drove my initial speaking business. I do 30 to 40 a year, and I love especially doing international speaking gigs. I'm a sucker for anything, especially a country I've never been to or never spoken in. I've done over 40 countries all seven continents. Yes, I have delivered a speech on Antarctica. Who booked Uh, you there? I actually, I wrangled it myself with Quark Expeditions. They're an expedition outfitter. And I rung up the CEO and I said, hey, I'm a professional speaker. I'm thinking about booking a trip with you. If I do it, will you give me a place that I can do a presentation in Antarctica? He goes, yeah, you're on. Let's do it. (laughs) So it was actually really, really pretty awesome. One of the things that's been really important for my business over the last five years is I presented all of Tony Robbins' business mastery events. Mm-hmm. And if you know Tony Robbins, you ever been to a Tony Robbins events, they are amazing events. And to get two hours on a Tony Robbins stage with thousands of people in the audience, and there's like a hundred support staff, if you count all the AV people. Yeah and everything. It is an amazing, amazing experience. And at the Tony Robbins events, it's the only place that I sell back of the room. So that's really transformed my business from taking, originally when I was started working with Tony, I took a speaking fee, but recently I've been selling a product called New Marketing Mastery back of the room. And and that's a different experience as a speaker to Mm -hmm. do that well. And I'm hoping that this new book we'll talk about in a little while, Fanocracy, the idea of fandom, will be the topic I'm going to be speaking around for the next decade. The 2020s is the decade of fandom for me and for my work. How did the the partnership with uh, Tony come to be? So he read one of my books, The New Rules of Marketing and PR, I don't know, probably around the time it came out. And then every once in a while, I would see that he would retweet me or reply to me. He's like, whoa, Tony Robbins, that's awesome. 
And I had never been to a Tony Robbins event. I hadn't read any of his books. He wasn't really on my radar other than the fact that I knew that every once in a while I would have a, a social engagement from him. And then his team reached out and said, would you like to come and speak? And of course, Tony Robbins wants oh, yeah. you to speak on his stage. The answer is yes. Yeah. And I did it for about two years where he paid my speaking fee. And I would do between two and four events a year, two a year in the US and then a couple times in Australia, a couple times in Europe. And then about two years in, Tony said to me, David, everybody at Business Mastery loves what you do. Everyone at Business Mastery loves your message, but they want to learn more after you get off the stage. I want to work with you to create an information product that we can sell after you get off the stage that will help people to implement the ideas that you talk about. Yeah. And so for me, that was transformational because I had never thought about doing a back of the room sale and information product sale. Once you get off the stage, I had seen people do back of the rooms before and it didn't feel like my style. It didn't yeah. feel like something I wanted to do because I had seen some bad examples of that where mm -hmm. people give a typical arrangement is people give away no real value and they're like hiding the secret sauce. And if you buy my program, you will learn the five secrets too. you know, whatever yeah. it is, um, how to buy real estate with no money down. And it just didn't feel right to me. But in Tony's world, that's not the way that, that we operate. In Tony's world, you give away everything. You provide tremendous value. People can walk away from the presentation learning a ton but if they want help to implement the ideas, there's that help available, which is the, in the form of, of different offerings that they right. have. And to me, that was awesome. And so I've been doing that now. I think I'm going into my fifth year of uh, fourth year, probably of doing those sales. And it's been really, really great because I think I've had about a thousand people go through the program now over the last four years. And I get emails every every week, you know, thank you. You know, you've helped my business. This is great. You know, and they sometimes share data, you know, a business has grown 20% because of the, of, of your teachings, that kind of thing. Yeah. Because there's a, and I'm glad you, you kind of explained all that because there's um for a lot of speakers, there is kind of this misconception about selling from stage that it can be a very negative, slimy, just if feeling. And we've all, I think we've all probably set through speakers that it just felt like a big pitch fest. And it felt like, what's the point of this? Like, why did I pay for this? Or what's the, you know, it just feels like a, a complete waste. So I think it's important to note that it, it can be overdone, but it can also be done properly and yes. done correctly where the audience finds the value from it and it doesn't feel sleazy or slimy or poorly done. I think that's exactly right. And in the Tony Robbins world, it works brilliantly well. They, coached me for almost a year until they were ready to have me go on a stage and do my very first back of the room offer. And every time I get off the stage, within 24 hours after I get on off of stage, his people are there to coach me. Here's what you did well. Here's what you need to improve. And it's all about value for the 2,500 or 3,000 people in the room. It's not about how much money I can make. It's not about how much money Tony's team can make because they make a piece of the sale. It's all about the value of the people in the room. Right. And I always think of it like this, Grant. I don't know if you've ever thought about this when you're on the stage, but I do all the time. I think to myself, I've got 2,500 people in this room. I've got 2,500 people for two hours. 
That's 5,000 hours of time. I'm doing the math here as I'm speaking. Divided by 24 hours. That's 208 days of people's time that I'm commanding. 24-hour days. Mm -hmm. If you were to break it down, say, well, some people sleep. That's a year of time that I've just commanded. I think of that all the time. I have to deliver so much value because I'm taking up 208 days out of the universe. And, and that's actually how I think of it. It's, I don't know if it's a little bit woo-woo and airy-fairy and hippie-ish, but I do think that way. I'm taking from the universe this 208 days of time. I have to deliver way more value than that to compensate the universe for the time I'm taking. So man, do I work hard on that stage. Man, do I prepare before I get on that stage. And oh man, do I have to have have every single person, even the ones who don't buy from me, every single person from there has to walk away and say, that was valuable. I'm glad I didn't stay in my hotel room. I'm curious, you speak a lot about marketing. Marketing seems to be obviously a, a big part of your world in terms of the topics that you speak on, the problems that you solve. Marketing is one of those topics that can also be a little universal in terms of it's really for every type of business. Any, anybody selling something of some form, it's for them. One of the challenges, as you well know from a speaking perspective, is if you try to go too wide and you try to speak to too many people, everyone's kind of like, yeah, I don't really know what they do or who they're exactly for. So how have you found a lane in marketing and yet made sure that, that you're not kind of you know, lost in the sea of marketing speakers? A first thing I think of is, yes, I'm categorized as a marketing speaker. My books generally are categorized as marketing books, but I actually see myself more as a business growth strategist. I'm about growing a business, whether that's a big company, a small company, a nonprofit, um, an educational institution. I have politicians who read my stuff, so growing the vote number of votes and so on. First of all, I look at myself as business growth as opposed to just straight marketing. The second thing is that for the last 15 years that I've been speaking professionally and earning money for speaking, I've been focused 100% on only speaking about patterns in the universe that I identified that nobody else saw and that I was the first person to identify and that I have a different way of thinking about what this topic broadly called, say, marketing or business growth is. So the first time this concept of I saw a pattern universe no one else was seeing was back around 2005-ish, 2006. I was writing a book, came out in 07, called The New Rules of Marketing and PR. That was the first book that articulated that marketing on the web is not about advertising, but it's about content creation. Mm -hmm. No one had ever written about that before. Maybe other people had the idea, Maybe they were in blogs and so on. I was the first person who wrote about that in a book. And that thing was six months on the Business Week bestseller list. It sold 400,000 copies in English. It's 29 other languages. It was a huge success because of a new pattern in the universe that I identified. So that was my topic for a long time. Mm -hmm. The second pattern in the universe I identified that no one else was talking about was 10 years ago, a few things happened. Not everyone remembers this, but some people do. 10 years ago, Google was not real time. Mm 
if I wrote a blog post, it took a month for Google to index it. Remember that? That was a hmm. weird time, right? But then all of a sudden, Google flipped the switch and the Google search engine became real-time instant. So if I wrote a blog post, it was visible to the world and indexed to the world instantly. At the same time, Twitter started to take off. So the pattern in the universe I identified was that marketing was going real-time, instant, right now, instantaneous yeah. communications. I also invented a concept called newsjacking, which is when you tie a story that you write to the news cycle so that you're pushing out your content. And this is a fabulous thing for speakers because we're all experts in something. That's what we yeah. speak on is our expertise. So if you see a news story breaking around your expertise, you put out a blog or a YouTube video or a tweet or a Facebook Live, whatever it is, right now, today, this instant, when the market is looking for what you have to offer. So rather than writing your blog post when you're ready, you're writing the blog post when the market is ready. I call that newsjacking. That became so popular, it's actually now in the Oxford English Dictionary. I spent years talking, my speech was about real-time marketing. Now, I've transitioned in the last couple of months to, I believe, the 2020s, the next decade, it's about growing fans. And I think the pendulum has swung too far in the direction of superficial online communications at a time when we're hungry for a, a real true personal connection. So I think we're going back to a personal way of marketing. And that's what I'm focused on for the next decade. And that's the next pattern in the universe that I just think I'm seeing and no one else is seeing, or at least no one else is talking about it. So I know you asked me a really simple question, but it was a really, really perceptive and probing question because I can't just be the marketing speaker that talks about what everyone else does. And one more final thought. I'm a huge live music fan. I've been to 780 live concerts. I've been to 75 Grateful Dead concerts. I have a spreadsheet of all the shows I've been to since I was 15 years old when I first started going to live shows. I think that as a speaker, I always want to play original music. Yeah. I don't ever want to be a cover band. And I think there are way, way too many marketing speakers out there who are cover bands. They're just taking other people's stuff, consciously or unconsciously. I'm not saying they're copying, but it's stuff that's already been out there. And I, I just always want to be someone who's talking about my own stuff. I'm sorry to ramble on for so long, but it was such a great question. I got some other questions, but before I get there, best live show that you've seen? I was the only person known to have taken photographs at Bob Marley's last concert. And they've actually become famous photographs. They're used in the Bob Marley documentary. They've been used in some books. Wow. Um, it was Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1980. I was 19 years old. And it was an amazing show. It was the only show Bob Marley played that he knew he was dying of cancer. Hmm. Only show. It was an amazing show. There's a live album out of it. But there was no known photographs other than the ones that I took. Another couple ones that I'm proud of. When I was 15 years old, the Ramones played my high school. <laughs> I was in the front row, which is kind of awesome. And I, you know, I've seen some epic bands that you know you're younger than I am. You know, seeing Led Zeppelin or seeing The Clash or seeing the Sex Pistols. I mean, it's all pretty awesome, right? Yeah, very cool. How about Thanks. you? You must be a live music fan to ask me a question like that. Uh, you know what? I have been to very few uh, live music show, and I'm not a big I'm not a big music guy. But I figure if you've been to 780 something, that's no, so it's a good question to ask. There are plenty of people out there that are going. I, I like live music. What do, what do they go to? So, yeah. so there you go. One more because it's a more modern show. None of my friends would go with me. They all laughed at me, but it was a fabulous show. Miley Cyrus backed by the Flaming Lips okay. at a club at the House of Blues in Boston. And it was fabulous. It was a couple of years ago. And 
loved it, loved it. Be- just because Miley Cyrus is iconic in that she's her own woman. She does her own thing. And it's just yeah. like what I was t- we were talking about earlier with speaking. She doesn't do covers. She's not someone else. She's her own artist. And I yeah. love that. So one of the things that you talked about before with the, is some of these like big trends that you see and kind of, I see the wave coming. I'm going to start paddling the surfboard to get yep. ahead of that. For a speaker that's in their space in a different industry outside of business growth or marketing that or they're trying to think through like, I'm trying to stay a step ahead and I'm trying to mm-hmm. stay ahead of the curve and identify things before either the market sees it or before other people, you know, competitors see it or whoever like, identifies it. What are you doing to be aware, to look out, to have your radar up, to catch those waves before they arrive? What I do is I read a lot, but outside of what I write and speak about. I very rarely read other marketing books. I I love Seth Godin. I read everything he writes, but I don't read many other marketing books or marketing blogs or marketing, listen to very many marketing podcasts, a few. I'm much more eclectic in the information I consume because I feel like if I'm going to identify a pattern, it's going to be from some other part of the world other than the the niche that I'm operating in myself. So I get ideas from lots of different places. So the idea that marketing is not about advertising, it's about content creation. I, I learned that just because I was thinking about content, not thinking about marketing. And the idea of marketing is real time, same idea. I was thinking about oh my gosh, this is all instant stuff. This is like a bond trading desk. This is, this is really different. This is really interesting. And the new stuff I've been talking about, this idea of fanocracy, I call it, is really been around, I'm just a, we just talked about a massive live music geek and how interesting is it to be a fan of something? And my co-author actually is my daughter, Reiko. She's 26 years old. And when we started researching, she was 21. She's a massive Harry Potter fan, huge Harry Potter fan. Read every book, seen every movie, went to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter theme park multiple times. She even wrote a 90,000-word alternative ending to the Harry Potter series where Draco Malfoy is a spy for the Order of the Phoenix and put that on a fan fiction site. It's been downloaded thousands of times. So she and I are both massive fans. And I was thinking to myself, gosh, is there a way for companies, nonprofits, government agencies, speakers, consultants to grow fans in the same way that Harry Potter has grown fans or the Grateful Dead have grown fans or that Miley Cyrus has grown fans. And that's what we researched for five years. So what I do first is I identify that pattern in the universe that I feel like really is something interesting. And I get some false starts. It's not like everything is is perfect. And then I'll begin exploring those ideas. I'll tweet a few things out. I might write a blog post or two. I might do a two-minute riff from the stage. I might talk to people just at a cocktail party, sort of exploring and poking and prodding this pattern in the universe that I see. If I start to get traction, if people say, wow, that's really interesting. Gosh, yeah. what, What do you mean by that? Or if after my speech, you know, 10 people ask me about this, this little riff I threw in that was new, or if I get more traction on that tweet I sent or that blog post I sent gets more comments, I think I have something there. Yeah. And I begin exploring it more and exploring it more and exploring it more. And then I think, do I have a book here? Do I have a speech here? Yeah. And if the answer is yes, then I, I go all in. And, and that's exactly what I've done now a, a couple of times. And, and it's been, that's been what's been transformational for my speaking business is because I'm talking about something new, something really different, something that people go, oh my gosh, this isn't just a marketing speech. This is like something new that I hadn't even thought of. Right. 
Fanocracy, turning your customers into fans and your fans into customers. So for people who are, especially speakers who are going, okay, how or why do I need to be turning my audience into fans? Or why do I need to be turning the event planners or decision makers into fans? Why does that even matter? So what's interesting about the idea of building fans is that you go from just doing transactions. In other words, oh my gosh, where is my next paid speech coming from? To building a tribe of people who are eager to know what you're doing next, who are eager to book you multiple times, who are eager to have you be a part of their tribe. And that's what happened to me in the Tony Robbins world, you know, is Tony has a massive fan base, millions of people who follow Tony Robbins. And just by Tony asking me to be a part of his tribe, it it has a rub off factor. And and some of those people then become my fans. So I think looking at the, the business of being a speaker from the perspective of of growing fans means that when you have a new work to get out there, you have a new speech to deliver, you have a new book that you want to push out there, you have a new podcast perhaps you want to launch, you've got a built-in audience that can help you along with that. And it's way better than always starting from scratch or always wondering where your next paid gig will come from or, or worse. And gosh, I'm fortunate that for 15 years, I've never had to pitch a speech, but worse is when you have to, you have to hustle and, and, and pitch it and, you know, sending out cold emails or whatever you have to do to get the gigs. And, and I know some people have a tremendous success with that. And that's great. I'm not saying it's wrong, but in my, my case, I would much rather have these invitations to speak come to me rather than me having to go out and find them. Yeah. I mean, of course, but to, and to be devil's advocate, some of that is also just the momentum of getting the flywheel going, getting the momentum going, getting the snowball rolling requires uh, some of that, uh, some more effort in the beginning to just get it started. And then the fans start to, it almost starts to become that flywheel where it starts to pick up momentum and word spreads. And Hey, have you seen David speak? David speaking at this such and such event? And or we, I saw David speak five years ago. We need to have him come speak at our thing. Yeah. And speaking leads to more speaking, but when you're yes. not speaking at all, or you're speaking just a couple of times trying to get it going, then it, it takes a little bit more of that kind of inertia and effort to get, get the ball moving. I think there's some truth to that. But let me share one specific idea around how speakers can build fans. And one of the most fascinating aspects of the research for this book was that we interviewed a bunch of neuroscientists. My daughter, Reiko, actually did a neuroscience degree at Columbia as her undergraduate degree, and she's now in her last year of medical school. And so she comes at this whole idea of fandom from a scientific perspective, as well as being a fan of Harry Potter. And we interviewed some neuroscientists about what's actually happening in our brains when we become fans. And here's sort of the bottom line of this book in one sentence is that fandom is about a human connection. So I love going to live music shows. Yes, I love the music, but I love being with my friends. I love being a part of a tribe of people. When I go to a Grateful Dead show, I've been to 75, you know, we know the lingo. You can turn to any other Grateful Dead fan at a Grateful Dead show and immediately have an instant bond because you're, yeah. you're part of the same tribe. That is a really powerful connection that we humans, it's hardwired in our brains. It's part of our DNA. It's a survival technique. Actually, the neuroscientists tell us it's a survival technique that you have po- close personal relationships with other people and you're part of a tribe. 
So there's one neuroscientist named Edward T. Hall who identified three levels of proximity. Public space further than 20 feet away. Our brains don't track people in public space. We know they're there, but we don't worry about them. Inside of public spaces, social space, 20 feet to four feet, our brains are very aware of who gets into our our social space because our ancient brain needs to know, is this a friend or a potential danger? Is this someone who might hurt us? Do we have to signal our fight or flight mode here? And then inside of four feet is called personal space. Really powerful emotions happen in personal space. That's why when you, with people you know and, and, and care for and love, other Grateful Dead fans or your, your best friends or at a cocktail party, very positive human emotions. Or in a crowded elevator, very neg- can be very negative. It's hardwired. We can't help it. So you feel nervous, even though intellectually you know there's no danger. Your brain signals danger because you don't know the other people in that elevator. Here's what this means for speakers. So many of us, I'm not including myself, but I know a lot of speakers who get paid to go on stage, deliver a talk, and run away, run to the airport. They don't stay. They don't mingle. They do, right. They're not a part of the event that they go to. I've always personally prided myself on telling the meeting planners that I will stick around as long as I can. If I have a morning talk, I want to be there for the, the morning break. I want to be there for the lunch. If I can still be there for the afternoon break and the cocktail hour and the dinner and I go home the next morning, I'm going to do that. Right. I'm not just going to do my speech, get off the stage and run to the airport. Well, it turns out that that's really, really, really effective for building fans as a speaker because of this incredible, powerful emotion that you're developing among those people who you have a chance to meet, especially when you hang around after your talk. Because when they see you in the speech, you're in their public space. You're 20 feet or further away. You're on that stage. You're untouchable. Then when they see you afterwards at the morning break, at the lunch, at the reception, you have five minutes to talk with them over a glass of wine at the reception incredibly powerful human emotions happening right then. They already trust you. They know you're the speaker. Yep. They heard you talk. That is a way to build fans. And, you know, it, it's worked for me brilliantly. You know, then the, the number of people then who comment to me later, God, it was so great to meet you. Thank you very much. I loved your talk. Every one of those is someone who can recommend you to, a, to another speech. Every one of those people, right. someone who can buy your next book. One more thing related to this is, I also find it really important after I get off the stage to immediately, as soon as I can, check the social feeds, check Twitter and, and the hashtag, if there's a hashtag at the event, yeah. and immediately begin replying to anybody who's reached out using my Twitter ID or anybody who's used a hashtag and talked about me. I immediately, right. as quickly as I can, respond because those are people who took the time to say something about you and I respond to them really quickly. So those are some of the things that I find around fandom that can work well for speakers. It's funny, you contrast the talking with people at an event 
after you speak with, if you talk to them before you speak, it's just awkward. It's clunky. Yeah. It's uncomfortable for everyone. They're like, wait, who are you? And why are you here? Like, ah, what do you do? What do you speak? And it's just, it's just weird. But after you speak, it's just night and day. It opens up all these opportunities that you're able to talk with people. And everything you just described there is oftentimes what an event planner is looking for. Right. So if you're mediocre at best on stage, but you're amazing off stage and you interact and you stick around that's the type of speaker that clients want to work with. That's exactly the type of right. client that, that, that's the type of speaker that clients want to refer and, and tell other people about because nothing to do with what happened on stage, nothing to do with the content or the message or the delivery, but who they were off stage makes a huge, huge difference. Huge, huge difference. And uh, again, I've already said it a couple of times, but I, I am really surprised when people say, oh, you know, my contract says I do a 45 minute speech. That's what I'm here for. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah. And then they're gone. You're right. I do not like going to the reception bef the night before I speak. I don't <laughs> nope. like it. Yep. I'll do it if the client wants me to. And I usually will have, I don't you normally have drink liquor, uh, drink alcohol before I speak. So I usually have a club soda or something, maybe one, one little bit of hors d'oeuvre and I'm gone. You know, I made my appearance, but I'm gone. Yep, yep. I sometimes will ask a few random people. So, Hey, what, why are you here? Where do you work? What are you looking forward to tomorrow? But for the most part, I'm like you. I, I, it feels awkward. It, it, that also is, it's, that's our ancient brain kicking in. We don't know those people. Yep. And our brain is saying we can't trust them because we don't know them yet. Yeah. But then afterwards, when everyone in the audience knows, well, this is the guy that they handpicked to be here. This person is a part of our tribe now. Yeah. And you're on the stage for 45 minutes or an hour. Those interactions after that are fabulous. I yeah. love it. You know, I'm like, and I'm, I hang around sometimes at the bitter end. I was at an event a couple of weeks ago and I, <laughs> it was a really, really fun cocktail party. And, and I hung around to the bitter end. It was going to last people to leave. And not because I was purposely doing it to, you know, grow fans or purposely doing it to please the meeting planners. I actually enjoyed the party a lot because I had a chance to speak with 15, 20 people meaningful conversations who had seen me speak and had something that they wanted to chat with me about. I want to wrap up with this. We are in a, um, you and I are in a, a private Facebook group with a bunch of speakers. And one of the things I like to ask speakers from time to time is, is tell me about a horror story from the road. You had one recently. I had uh, an epic horror a story. A great one, which the telling of it on Facebook, which, because sometimes when you, you share something from stage, it doesn't always translate to the written word, but the way you, you described it in a Facebook post was <laughs> phenomenal. So tell us the story. What, it was in Mexico or Cancun? Yeah, it was in Mexico. Yeah, be happy to tell the story. It's every speaker's worst nightmare. So <laughs> as a speaker, I've had these weird dreams and I've had other speakers tell me they've had similar type dreams where you have to be on stage in an hour and you're naked and you can't find your clothes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a weird, it, I don't know what it is, but it's like, oh my gosh, this is the most, this is the, you, you wake up in a cold sweat and you got you know, eight hours till you have to speak. So I have a routine before I speak. I, um, I do yoga. Uh, it's really important for me to do yoga. I actually travel with a yoga mat. That's how important it is to me. I almost always do it in my hotel room. Uh, I had an engagement in Mexico. There were 450 dealers from Mazda, the auto company, waiting for me. And it was their big annual event. It was a big deal. They booked me months before. I had like, it was a, like a lot of phone calls prior to this. They actually built the CEO of Mazda North America's speech around the idea of fandom because they wanted it to coordinate with me. So it was a big deal. And so, 
I'm all excited about this speech. I have an early morning call time. And so at 5 a.m., it's dark out. I decide I'm going to do yoga outside on the balcony because I wanted to do hot yoga. This is pretty awesome. And so I decide, you know what? I want to really do a, get a proper sweat bolt up here. So I wore a Speedo. <laughs> I'm also a lap swimmer, so I happen to have a Speedo with me. So I, I'm doing yoga in my Speedo. It was great. I did an hour of yoga, and I got sweaty and hot. It was wonderful out on the balcony of this five-star resort in Mexico on the fourth floor. And no one could see me because it was, you know, it was one of those, those sort of balcony fence things. Plus it was dark out. I went to go back into the, <laughs> into the hotel room. The slider was locked. And I'm like, at first I'm like, no way you're kidding me. And like, <laughs> I pull it on the door. I am locked out. I have to be on a stage in, in, or actually to call time in two hours. This was, by then it was six o'clock in the morning. No. I had to be down there at eight o'clock in the morning. I have two hours and I'm in a speedo and I'm locked out. So here's what's go through my mind. Plan A, I can leap down, not four stories, but I can leap down about 20 feet to this roof garden that was right below my room. And I actually considered that. But the problem is I could have landed in cactus or, or worse, once I got down there, maybe there's no way to get back into the, into, into the hotel. So I, yeah. I decided not to do that. I could have broken the glass door <laughs> by pushing a chair against the door. I actually thought about that. Chose not to do that because, I don't know, it was like, would have been really dramatic and the glass was really thick. And I, I don't know, just, okay, I, I probably would have done that if it had gotten closer. The next idea, which I did try, was I climbed over the balcony, you know, fencing thing, and I started doing a kind of a Spider-Man along the, yeah. along the outside of the balcony uh, railing to other rooms because I wanted to see if anyone else was awake and, and, and could let me in their room. <laughs> and I went like three or four rooms one direction, three or four rooms the other direction, and I thought to myself, well, wait a minute. I'm a sweaty guy in a Speedo, and it's like a Me Too era. This is not something that I probably ought to be doing. I could get in deep trouble. I could end up in a Mexican jail. So, so I, I better not do that. So I went back to my room, climbed over, and then I thought the only thing I can possibly do is yell. So I waited and I waited and I waited, and I, oh, by then I had to pee. <laughs> so I, I, what are I going to do? Pee over the balcony? And I thought about that, so I peed into the flower pot. <laughs> and then finally somebody came. So I yelled down, help, I'm stuck on the balcony. I can't get out. And this guy looks up. He was a gardener, I think. He looked and he waves to me. <laughs> he doesn't speak any English. And I can imagine going through his mind is, what is this crazy drunk gringo doing yelling down at me like this for? And then two more people came down. I yelled, help, I'm stuck. And they, they both waved to me too. It's like, this is, and now I'm getting really freaking nervous because it's like 45 minutes till I have to be on, uh, onto the stage uh, um, for the call time. And finally, another person came by, help, do you speak English? Yes, I'm stuck room, whatever the room number was, you know, 486. And then, he, oh, he, okay, coming. Then I realized, Oh crap, I deadbolted the door. <laughs> oh my God. How, 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 I, so I sat down in the lounge chair and I'm like, oh, I can't believe this. So I waited and I waited and I waited and I waited. They had to find the special key that opens the deadbolt. There is such a thing, opens the deadbolt. It's not the normal security key, it's the double secret key they needed. So finally, they got me out 
and I'm sweating. I look like I just got out of the swimming pool, sweating in the speedo. And they, and they looked at me and like, Oh my God, this is weird. You know? And I, 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 I'm like, thank you very much. Please leave my room. And I took a really quick shower and I, I didn't, I didn't run, but I almost had to run. And I can't believe it. I arrived in the room at one minute before my call time. It had anything gone a little bit more sideways, I would have missed this really important speech. <laughs> and I wouldn't have been able to tell anyone why. Where's our speaker? He's missing. Is he dead? <laughs> yeah. Did, you, did you, know, you tell the story? I did not. Have Actually, you shared it at all from stage? I, it seems I, like a I, golden story. I thought about sharing the story from that stage at that event. Yeah. I considered it and I thought, I can't because there's a chance that I would embarrass the meeting planners because they wanted everything perfect and it wasn't perfect. You know, the slider locked on the speaker. And I also didn't want it to be about me. I didn't want the speech to be about me. I wanted the speech yeah. to be about the audience and how they can build fans for Mazda. And that's what the speech was about. So I chose not to. However, later on, I did tell the meeting planner what happened. She thought it was hysterical. <laughs> and I didn't say I thought about telling them from the stage. I just told, told the story. They thought it was hysterical. But thanks for asking. It was every speaker's nightmare, but fortunately, it worked out well. It's a nightmare in the moment, but after it happens, like this is amazing story to use. Oh, it's an amazing story. From stage. Oh, and you're right. This the Facebook group that we're part of, which is all professional, about 400 professional speakers. I had like over a hundred comments on that story that I wrote up on the Facebook. It was that morning I wrote about it. You know, after I got off the stage, here's what happened to me today. That's amazing. <laughs> David, thank you so much for the time. The book is Fanocracy, Turning Your Customers into Fans and Fans into Customers. If people want to find out more about you, what you're up to, check out the book. Where can we go? Yeah, so uh, we, are, we talked about at the top, but I'm the only David Meerman Scott in the world, so Google me and you'll learn about me. There is a site at www.fanocracy.com, so you can learn more about the ideas in the book. We've got a bunch of free content there. And on the socials, I am DM Scott, D-M-S-C-O-T-T. Thank you very much, David. Appreciate it, man. Thank you, Grant. I really appreciate what you do, and I'm really am honored that you have me on. All right, there you go. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with David. Did you enjoy that final story? I told you that was good, right? Crazy, crazy scenario there, crazy situation, but uh, yeah, one of the war stories that happens out on the road in the life of speakers. Again, check out his new book, uh, Fanocracy, Turning Your Customers into Fans and Fans into Customers. Make sure you uh, pick that up, and while you're picking that up, also pick up a copy of The Successful Speaker. Again, the book will be out February the 18th, so about a month away, depending on when you're listening, but you can uh, still go ahead and pre-order the book. We have a lot of pre-order bonuses that we are going to hook you up with. We have heavily incentivized you to pre-order the book, so you can do that by going over to thespeakerlab.com slash book. Again, thespeakerlab.com slash book and pre-order your copy of The Successful Speaker. All right, my friends, that wraps up today's episode. We'll catch you next time. You're awesome.